Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Ira Gruber, and he'll be answering your questions on Ira Gruber's Atlantic Salmon Flies. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Ira a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, to make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, I would sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have for a moment, do it right now and uh, let everybody know about the great show we're having tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses, Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Ira Gruber about Ira Gruber's Atlantic salmon flies. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Ira, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Iris section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winner at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Iris' latest book, Iris Gruber's Atlantic Salmon Flies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show, and the question will be about something that Ira and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and your location in the text box on our homepage. Maybe you'll win Ira's book. So listen closely, type fast, take notes, and we'll see you when we do the giveaway. Our guest tonight is Ira D. Gruber. Ira is a professor emeritus of history at Rice University. He previously taught at Duke University, Occidental College, and the United States Military Academy, and has written books on the American Revolution, including John Peebles' American Wharf for Stackpole Books. Ira has served on the Board of Trustees for the Society of Military History and the Department of the Army Historical Advisory Committee and the National Park Service Advisory Board on the Revolutionary War. He received the Samuel Elliott 
Morrison Prize from the Society for Military History. Ira lives in uh, Bel Air, Texas, and is the grandson of Ira W. Gruber. Ira, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you. Glad yeah, to be here. Good to have you. Yeah, good to have you tonight. Yeah, so just to clarify right off the bat, <laughs> you are um, the grandson of Ira W. Gruber, and you were obviously named after him, albeit a different middle name. But um, just so that everybody knows tonight that you're a historian and you really wrote this book about your grandfather and the Atlantic salmon flies that he designed, fished, and his just the general fishing that he did in the Miramichi River using these flies. And so we're going to explore some history tonight. We're not going to be talking about fishing techniques but we're going to talk about the history of this famous fly tire and fisherman and the flies he developed. So with that said, <laughs> that's where we're going to start. So Ira, tell us about Atlantic salmon flies. How did this come about? What made you get started on this? And when did you actually get started? Give us a little history about the book itself. Well, my scholarship for many, many decades has been about war and politics in the 18th century. But I was well aware that my grandfather was a, uh, a celebrated tire of flies, inventor of some patterns, and uh, held in very high esteem in New Brunswick. And I was able, with my children's help, they were able to go to the sale of my father's estate and buy the flies. The fishermen who were there were extremely respectful, allowed them to essentially get the flies, or at least a thousand of them, and we could then have them and secure them here at Rice University, where I could study them and write about them. So uh, the book is dedicated to those people who preserved the flies. That is, my father first, my sister, and then our three children. And they bought these flies at my father's estate sale. So we were very fortunate to be able to get them and to keep them. Grandfather Ira tied about 1,800 flies a year in the era of World II in the 1930s and 1940s. He was too old to serve in that war. He was in his 60s and 70s. And I have the good fortune of, as a young person, of being with him in Canada and going to the Southwest Miramichi for a couple of fishing adventures. But I am not a fly tire and not a, by no means an expert on fly fishing. But I was able to use his flies and his annotated books and papers to create a book about him. So that's where I got started, and this is a uh, something I thought to do simply because I wanted to do something to preserve his memory and his achievements. Oh, good, good. Now tell us a bit about your grandfather, because by the end of his life, he was a very accomplished man, from what I read in the book. 
but he didn't start out that way. Tell us a bit about the history of how his life, you know, developed in the business that he got in and, you know, pursued as he went through life. He was born in 1882 on a family farm west of Philadelphia in what was called Berks County. And he was one of 14 children, same parents, all of whom seemed to have been remarkably healthy. And as a young boy, he learned much about farming and maybe a slight bit about field sports, but mostly farming, how to provide for animals, how to plant and harvest crops, and how to get along with a family that had eventually 14 children. So parents and 14 children, that's a pretty big household. And they, of course, had to leave the farm in search of some kind of work and he migrated from this family farm in Berks County, west, a little northwest of Philadelphia, and he moved from there when he went to visit his sister who lived in a town called Spring City, about halfway between his family farm and Philadelphia on the Schuylkill River. And he went there at Thanksgiving. His sister was... Uh, very friendly and very nice to him, and he wandered from there to his brother-in-law's workplace, and it turned out that that was a manufacturing plant that manufactured, at that point, women's clothing and underclothes primarily. So from a very sort of undirected start, he drifted into a plant through his sister and brother-in-law, and he eventually, somebody handed him a hammer and nails and told him to build some crates. They were shipping some clothing to various retailers, and he did that, and the holiday came to an end, and he was on his way back to the farm when the owner of the plant was impressed with his industry and his intelligence and said that he wanted him to stay and would he stay and go to work. Well, he did stay, eventually went to work, and within a few years he became superintendent. About six or seven years to become superintendent of a manufacturing plant. That he was also able to earn far more than money than he could ever have imagined. And he was able to begin to use that to support childhood interests in hunting and fishing. Actually, hunting, trapping, and fishing. At that point in his life, this is right on the eve of World War I, there was no sort of uh, visionary interest in tying flies. It was rather more of uh, having flies, acquiring them, using them when he went off with friends in fishing expeditions. But he was, where did he um where did he fish and hunt? Was it in well Pennsylvania it, or Oh yes. At first hunting and fishing was in Pennsylvania. And it was in a place that I don't know, but it was in central Pennsylvania, I think Lycoming. And um there he simply 
went as uh, any young fisherman might go with some kind of fishing rod and some kind of lures to attract fish. This was not somebody who had an instant interest in tying flies. He basically a user of lures, whatever the lures they were using for the fish they were pursuing. Right. Uh, and that was all in Pennsylvania. And the work he got in a place called Spring City, this knitting factory, brought him income that he had nothing, like nothing he'd ever had. And with that kind of rich income, he was able eventually to think uh, about what was then considered a very exclusive and expensive sport, which was Atlantic salmon fishing. And so beginning after World War I, and, uh, he with, and he had also had the money to court and marry a woman who became, obviously, my grandmother, and they were able to think about moving out from Pennsylvania. And he thought of a place called Doketown, New Brunswick, Canada, on the southwest Miramichi River, where by about 1920, he was thinking of having a place to live. And he had a, had a house built there, acquired some land, built a house, and that became a place that he would go from the late spring through the summer to the early autumn. Or um, he had actually gone there in more in colder fall hunting expeditions, staying in a local hotel and just mm -hmm. walking into the woods and using, you know, a campsite for hunting and trapping. The seasons were all quite different. Um, right. By the 1920s, he was having, he had a house and a place to um, go primarily for summers. Now, mm -hmm. summers in New Brunswick were not great fishing periods because the rivers would run low and warm and clear, and the fish were wary. Uh, they were not easy to attract. So fishing was not something at first that attracted him. He was more into hunting and trapping, and that would not have required year-round residence. But he eventually built a house, or a bungalow, we called it, and with it some outbuildings. The outbuildings included ice house, they would harvest. This was before there was rural electrification. Sure, especially that, that far north, yeah. Oh, there was nothing like that. They, yeah. Yeah. The lighting was with gas, um, rather oil lamps, and the refrigeration such as it was, was cubes of ice harvested from the river, the Miramichi, and stored in an ice house. Um, huge blocks of ice stored in sawdust that would keep through the summer. They were brought out of the ice house, put in uh, what would have been called <laughs> an ice box on the back porch of his bungalow, and mm -hmm. the ice would keep what they needed cool. In the 1930s, he had the luxury of having 
water piped to a pump near the house, so they had fresh water, and um, with oil lamps and wood stove for cooking and a central wood stove for heating, you could be pretty comfortable there from late spring to early autumn. It would not have been a place that many people would have liked in the colder weather. So right, right. It was a bungalow, he called it. It looked pretty nice. You, there are pictures of it in a little book that I've written about him. And the main house came with all these outhouses, including the ice house and what became his fishing tying bench. It was a little house where he stored his rods, reels, boots, and um, had a bench where when, by say, the late 1930s, he was tying flies pretty regularly or began to tie flies regularly. He had his raw materials and he was able to work out there. So okay. it, it was a, uh, a place that essentially made a transition from a post-war a vacation spot which sustained um, what we would call sort of variety of field sports to a, uh, a house that eventually was devoted very or primarily to uh, fishing in season. Yeah. And so, Ira, before we go further down that path, I need to take a quick break here. But um, when we come back, I'd like you to kind of rewind because I'm assuming that when he got this house, he was really uh, heavily involved in his business, right? I mean, oh. he had bought, sold, and, and a lot. So I'd like, I'd like to visit that when we come back from break and talk about that, that history as well. I will be okay. glad to do the business aspect. Okay, great. Take a break. I'll be right back. Musky Town, it's so much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guy, an experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. And most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's ever anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of Muskie, go to Muskie Town. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Ira Gruber about Ira's Gruber's Atlantic Salmon Flies. If you would like to ask Ira a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. So, Ira, yeah, um, let's talk, give us a, yeah, a little bit more history and background about his, his business because, you know, he, he seemed to be quite accomplished from where he started just building crates or boxes that day. And, you know, what happened after that? Well, gradually, he was, came to learn every aspect of manufacturing clothing. And in doing that, he began to have quite an income. For a young person off of the farm, he was 
paid pennies a day to start with, and then he was paid more pennies a day <laughs> when, he, when he became what amounted to eventually superintendent of a plant. And so he gained the income through uh, manufacturing clothing, and that allowed him to get to marry and to think of something more expensive in fishing, which was fishing for Atlantic salmon in New Brunswick. The fishing in Pennsylvania was not nearly as exotic, and somebody had, of course, told him how wonderful it would be to uh, get on a train in Philadelphia, go to Fredericton, New Brunswick, have someone meet him and drive him off to a perhaps a boarding house or a hotel, and then eventually to have the ambition to buy his own land uh, and to build his own small house there on that land. Now, all this was before anything might be called rural electrification, so the building had to be largely self-contained, and eventually he had to have what amounted to a staff. He was wealthy enough by the late 1920s. Well, he had sold his business, bought it back, and had two children by his wife, my father and my aunt, and he was able to give my father a, but in those days, a very significant education. My father went to a private school and to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School and learned rather a lot about economics and business practices of that era. My father graduated in 1931, and my grandfather took the opportunity to give him task of working in his factories, one factory in Spring City, Pennsylvania, another nearby in a place called Phoenixville. Those two factories were the basis for grandfather's economic freedom and success, and he was a very wealthy man. By the time World War II came around, he was somebody who had a house in Florida, in St. Petersburg, where he did saltwater fishing the west coast of Florida, and a house in New Brunswick from 1920 in Oak Town, New Brunswick. And he would arrive in style in what was a refurbished estate in Pennsylvania, a farmhouse that was turned into a rather elegant-looking mansion with 200 and some acres, 260 acres, uh, which had a basic uh, a Georgian-style house and a separate building for, which was a garage and machine shop. And then he had uh, landscaped it into a horticultural park, which had square, round pools flowing downward and into a lake that he had stocked with perch and bass, and a lake built along the banks of an old canal, a Bukil Canal. So he had, uh, by the 1930s, he had somebody to manage his business, my father, who was a energetic and well-educated person and who turned out to be able to really manufacture not just for one or two retailers. Grandfather had manufactured for uh, 
people who had stores as and we would know their names Grant and um, Sears Roebuck uh, J C Penney. Oh. Grand, grandfather had two mills and had some pretty ready outlets for his clothing. My father eventually wanted to sell clothing throughout the United States. And he went from women's, mainly to men's and boys' clothing, underwear. And he had eventually, I think, something like 17 plants uh, throughout the country. So they had the means, particularly my grandfather had the means, to travel with the seasons. My childhood, when I was four or five years old, we would get in a sumptuous car. I think grandfather's was a Packard in those days. And we would drive to Philadelphia, meet a train. He would emerge from the train, and he would stop and stay with us for a few weeks, spring and fall. And it was between what was by then, the late 1930s, he was at a house in St. Petersburg where he did saltwater winter fishing and then New Brunswick where he did mainly summer fishing. Um, he had been diagnosed with diabetes in about 1930, and he never seemed to, after the diabetic emergence, they just had insulin. My grandmother, insulin and measured foods kept him healthy, but he did not do well in cold weather, so he traveled with the seasons, uh, winters in Florida, spring and fall in Pennsylvania, and only the warmer summer months in Brunswick. And the bear and moose of his earliest uh, forays into New Brunswick uh, were quite safe from him by then. <laughs> okay. He was not hunting them. <laughs> it was fish, right. Right. trout, and trout and salmon. So about, I know from early on, he was an outdoorsman, hunting, trapping, fishing. How old was he, or, or you know, what year was it that he? Do you think he really? was really getting serious about the fly fishing, especially for Atlantic salmon and, and, the, uh, and the, the fish of Florida. Right. Well, he was born in 1882, and I would say by the 1930s, which would put him in his 50s, he began to take a serious interest in fishing. And by, the late 19, by his late 1950s, early 1960s, his early 60s, his years, his age, right, right. he was had the wealth, the leisure, uh, the freedom to travel and to keep his body, his diabetic body going. And my grandmother was very important in that story because from my earliest acquaintance, he was having insulin shots and um, that was some treatment that was fairly new in the 1930s and measured food, balanced food, everything measured at every meal, and everything on time. So he was very fortunate in having a wife who was uh, a well-disciplined and intelligent human being who really looked after his health. And his health did limit his movement, as I've already said, because I don't think that he would have been comfortable after the emergence of the diabetes to uh, have 
pursued bear or moose in Canada. We had in his houses had uh, little memories of those moments. There was, of course, uh, it, it, yes, you'd have to say, of course, but there was a full spread moose over one fireplace in one room. There were other animals that he had, a beaver, for example, or there were deer uh, antlers and uh, bear skins, things that he had taken earlier in his life. But all of that was something of the past and really um, vestiges of his earlier hunting and trapping. And I don't think that by the 1930s, when he was in his 50s, that there was much chance that he would have been doing any serious hunting and trapping. Right. When did he, um, when did he get an interest in designing and tying flies? Well, and How did that come about? The late 1930s, and he had, um, I think he, he had a wide supply for his flies and fishing. That is, he took up, he knew who produced flies in Great Britain, in the United States, in Canada. He corresponded with people. He bought flies. And by the late 1930s, he had hired a a local man, New Brunswick, who was experienced tire of flies and died, and hired him to help uh, teach him the basics of putting threads and furs and feathers on a hook. And he was doing that by the beginning of World War II. He was by then too old, that's 40, 20, he's in his 60s. He was far too old to be subject to conscription, and besides, he really wasn't physically fit for uh, any kind of sustained military service. So during and after World War II, uh, he had the basic understanding of how to tie a fly, he had the materials, he had a wide network for acquiring materials from British Isles and um, suppliers in the United States and Canada. And he also had a small library of books on flying, like fishing. So he was uh, pretty serious about dining and tying flies. And since he was there often in the summers, he fished when maybe other people did not fish. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, fishermen were not very successful in Brunswick in, say, July or August when the water was low, clear, warm. The fish were not very interested in, in uh, lures. Uh, and I think the fishermen uh, tended not to, uh, I do not know the whether there were seasons, particularly defined seasons, they're but, legally defined, yeah. Yes, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, yeah. But uh, there was not a lot of fishing going on. The water was low, clear, and warm. And by that time in his life, he had acquired the services of uh, 
he had first had a guide named Irv Robinson, and then he acquired another guide who, during the Depression, had fled Detroit, uh, a guy named Bing Russell. And Bing had gone back to Brunswick when the Depression left so many people without work in the United States, particularly in Detroit. Bing went back to guiding. He was young and healthy and agreeable. And he and grandfather became friends. Um, grandmother had another friend, Mrs. Witherell. And between them, Mrs. Witherell and Bing Russell looked after grandmother and grandfather's house and buildings during the winter months and then worked with them and for them in the summers. They were very trustworthy and uh, very, uh, I would say, uh, very good companions. Particularly, uh, well, Mrs. Witherell for grandmother and Bing for grandfather. Bing went to the river regularly. He had a, uh, my recollection, uh, he had a car that we would call a well-used car in which they could put a boat or a, uh, a canoe on the top and drive it to a launching place on the river, get in, have a lunch packed, food packed, and go off for days fishing. My first experience of all this was to be told to sit in the middle of the boat, keep my head down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't get hooked. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There were things yeah. flying above me that would not have been good for a, a five- or six-year-old child. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, they, Bing and Ira were very, very compatible. They really enjoyed experimenting, and they would pull something through the water like a sieve and see what, the, what was in the water. And then they would try to find a way of tying flies simulate dead insects or insects that might have attracted fish. And they did that very persistently. And I think if you will look broadly through the photographs in the book about iris flies, you will see that they are often by comparatively drab. And uh, they were meant to attract people fished under the surface of the water. He tied very few flies that were to simulate an insect on the surface, something that would have required a dry fly. Right. He tied wet flies to go under the surface, and they were uh, frequently, he and Bing would perform an autopsy on a fish to see what the fish had ingested. Um, and then using the results of what they saw in the fish and what they saw in the water, they would try to then uh, tie something that looked uh, right to a fish. Um, yeah, it um, they in, yeah paging through the book and looking at those, most fish flies were you know tied with very natural colors, which would you know a lot of people think of Atlantic salmon flies as being uh, these kind of gaudy showpieces that you put in a frame, you know, because of the bright colors and, yeah. 
but his are, are much more natural and look like uh, look like they'll catch fish. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, oddly enough, that's what he was interested in, and yeah, he eventually tied literally uh, thousands of flies. I think, as I mentioned, he was tying something like eighteen hundred flies a year at the you know, in the period of World War II and right thereafter. Uh, in the 1960s, I'm sorry, in the 1950s, when he was uh, getting a bit frail, he had first one stroke in about 1953 or four, somewhere there. But then he had a much more severe stroke, uh, and that really kept him from tying thereafter. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's hold that uh, thought. I have to take another break here. Um, when we come back, let's start talking more about his flies, and uh, and we'll explore that down that path. So hang tight here, Ira, and we'll, we'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Ira Gruber about Ira Gruber's Atlantic Salmon Flies. If you'd like to ask Ira a question, go to our homepage at Ask About Fly Fishing and uh, fill out that form, and uh, we'll see if we can't get it answered. All right. Um, so, yeah, so we're starting to dig a bit deeper into the flies um, that he was tying back then. So initially he was tying for his own use primarily, I take it. Is that correct, Ira? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, where did he get his materials back then? Because I'm assuming they weren't as, it wasn't as easy back then as it is today to get uh, fly tying materials. Oh, it certainly was not. I have, a, in the little book that I've written about him, I have a catalog, more or less, of the uh, people who supplied them, and they were called outfitters, and they are uh, roughly a dozen or more firms in uh, British, in Canada, England, and the United States that uh, were able to provide him with some of the uh, furs, threads, feathers that he needed, as well as some of the material that bound them together. I should say about his flies, he sought to tie a fly, and this was apparently something that was not so easy to do, that had a, uh, that were tapered fore and aft, that is, that had a, what appeared to be a thick midsection, and yet did not throw the, the feathers outward. He was able to combine a, what we would call a fairly um, thick body that tapered to the front and to the rear, uh, and it did not somehow force the wings up in an unnatural way. They were 
lying down rather close to the, the body of the fly. And so people frequently would want to come and talk to him about tying, watch him tie, and ask him questions about what he was doing. Uh, I think that the coloring and the shape of these flies attracted fish and, of course, attracted people to him uh, when they when they found out who had tied them. He was not, he enjoyed sharing what he did with other people. Apparently, he was not secretive about it. He would invite them to come and watch while he tied. He had little boxes created uh, they, that had his name and address and silhouette of a fish and it had perhaps a half a dozen flies um, in the box that um, were of a particular kind. The boxes came with end labels and so you could stack up the boxes and see what you had. Now were these were these boxes were these was he selling these or was he giving these away? Oh, I think um, he, I don't know that I never understood that he sold any. Uh, what oh, I, okay. I, what I understood that he did was if he became friendly with somebody who was a fellow fisherman, uh, that uh, he would offer the person some, uh, you know, a, a few flies, a couple of different ones. Um, he had a friend that he knew from Florida, winters in Florida, who took about a half a dozen, oh, I think maybe even a few more flies to uh, the Rocky Mountains and fished for trout. And he wrote back a very glowing and appreciative letter to Ira saying how wonderful the flies had been and how durable that he had taken more than 50 fish trout on, on one fly that had gone in and out of uh, wow. 50 yeah. miles. And now, look, I, as I've said, I am not really a fisherman, and I don't know how, how those flies were made to be that durable. But uh, this man, whose name was Earl Gresh, was a, an experienced fisherman, and he had a summer in um, the, the mountains, the Rocky Mountains. And during that summer, he experimented with some of these patterns and was very happy with them because he could fish them over and over again. I don't know how rare that is, but that's what he claimed. Oh, yeah, and most flies don't at last for 50 fish, no. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you still there? Did I lose you? Okay, uh, looks like I may have lost Ira. I'm going to wait here for a little bit, see if he uh, can dial back in. And um, so we'll just hang tight for him in just a minute. So, yeah, um, Ira's grandfather was... Um, quite the businessman and uh, you do folks get a, a chance to read his book on his grandfather uh ira goes into quite more detail about how he bought and sold and rebought these companies and expanded and all from really the ground up so uh, it's really quite impressive what he was able to accomplish and his flies, too. I don't know how many Ira actually has in this book, but I think he's uh, kind of credited with some 30-some, 30 36 flies, I believe, 
of his own design. He had 38 flies that he developed over a lifetime for fishing for Atlantic salmon. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that is uh, quite the accomplishment in and of itself as well. And, and basically, yeah, as we all do nowadays, designing them to catch fish and a particular kind of fish, you know, the Atlantic salmon. So, but, um, let's, uh, see if, um, Let's see what's uh, what's happening here with Ira, and uh, see if we can't get him back on the line here. So hang tight, folks. I'm gonna make a phone call out to him and see if we can't um, get something going there. Well, folks, uh, not sure what's going on. Wasn't able to reach Ira by phone and. Just sent him an email, so I'm not sure what happened on his end, if there was kind of power outage or something that affected him. But uh, it looks like this, this show has just had all kinds of problems and trying to get done, unfortunately. So if uh, we'll just kind of leave it at that, and we'll have to try to regroup or, or just call this a, a win as it is. Anyway, uh, check out. Ira's book, Ira Gruber's Atlantic Salmon Fly, very interesting read on the history of uh, his grandfather and also a history of all the flies that he developed, great photography of those flies and description of those flies as they were and how they were fished back then. So check that out. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we're going to just have to call it quits here tonight and uh, wish you all the best. Good fishing, and we'll see you next time.